Welcome to QuackCast 51, Short Attention Span QuackCast. Now, I used to have this long intro. I'm not going to do it anymore, except to say, go to iTunes, write me a review. This is a green podcast. I repurpose old material for the benefit of the children. Yes, for the children. Entries are often complete when I do these podcasts, and I leave no turn unstoned. Yet, not every topic needs a full Monty. I have pontificated with extensive evaluations on many topics, and new medical literature doesn't really require a complete analysis. Many new articles add incrementally to the literature, and their conclusions need to be inserted into this podcast, like a car sliding into heavy traffic. My son just received his driver's license, and car metaphors are very much on my mind, as are crash metaphors, insurance metaphors. I think this whole growing up is a bad idea. So, in response to this need, a need only recognized by me, I give you short attention span quackcast, a summary of a few recent studies and their key points as they relate to prior topics covered on this quackcast. Topic one, like the McLaughlin report. Influenza, quote, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee, end quote. John Dunn said that, not Ernest Hemingway. And how much does a Hemingway? Influenza will be starting soon. There are multiple, shall we say, misstatements made about influenza and its treatment and prevention in the scamosphere. The first concerns death. Flu does not kill, or so it is asserted. Or maybe it only kills a thousand people a year. During last year's H1N1 season, I took care of a pair of patients who died from acute influenza, not its complications. Now, direct deaths from influenza are always a fraction of the deaths from indirect causes. Worsening of heart failure, worsening lung disease, secondary infection. I try to never use the word only when discussing flu deaths. Perhaps I take it too personally. Not a patient of mine was ever an only. And it fries my bacon no end when the deaths of others are diminished. How influenza deaths are calculated has been discussed over at Science-Based Medicine, but the CDC released new information on influenza deaths this month, covering the years 1976 to 2007. Calculating flu deaths is not easy. The number lies somewhere between direct deaths from influenza and deaths from all the other acute but related diseases. Quote, Deaths from pneumonia and influenza causes are highly correlated with the circulation of influenza and can be considered a lower bound for deaths associated with influenza. However, a diagnosis of influenza virus often is not confirmed with sensitive and specific laboratory diagnoses, particularly among older persons, and even when identified, is rarely recorded on death certificates. 
Many deaths associated with influenza infections occur from secondary infections, such as bacterial pneumonia or complications of chronic conditions, such as congestive heart failure and chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. Therefore, estimates using respiratory and circulatory mortality data, which include pneumonia and influenza deaths, can provide an upper bound for influenza-associated deaths, end quote. And the striking thing from the data is that, on average, there is no average flu season. Deaths vary from year to year and depends upon the circulating strain of influenza. Over 31 consecutive flu seasons, on average, there were 23,600 deaths a year linked to the flu, varying from a low of... 3,349 deaths in the 1986 season to a high of 48,614 in the 2003 season. When H3N2 predominated, deaths were 2.7 times higher than compared to other strains. As a comparison, H1N1 is estimated to have killed between 8,300 and 17,000 people. The classic number is about 36,000 deaths a year, but the real number, as is always the case in medicine, depends. As the CDC says, quote, a single estimate should not be used to summarize influenza-associated deaths. A range of estimates should be described in the context of circulating virus strains and underlying causes of death among age groups, end quote. So we have a slow season. People become cavalier about influenza. We have a busy season with lots of deaths. Maybe people are not so cavalier about flu. Death is often a bad outcome, and it is better not to die of the flu or its complications. A recent case control study comparing flu-vaccinated versus unvaccinated patients found that the receipt of the flu vaccine, hey, look at this, it decreased the risk of a heart attack. Well, I'll be. Quote, we included 78,706 patients, of whom 16,000 were cases and 62,000 were matched controls. Influenza vaccine had been received in the previous year by 8,472 cases and 32,081 controls and was associated with a 19% reduction in the rate of acute myocardial infarction. Early seasonal flu vaccination was associated with a lower rate of acute myocardial infarction than the vaccine after mid-November, end quote. And the authors do not speculate on the mechanism of this protection, but that will not stop me. As I've discussed before, infections are pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic. Myocardial infarctions, heart attacks, strokes, and pulmonary embolisms are increased during and after acute infections, perhaps in part due to increased stress on the heart, but also, perhaps, due to the prothrombotic state. You get infected, you get inflamed, you get thrombotic, you get clot in your coronary artery, you get clot in your brain, you get clot to your lung. It is reasonable to hypothesize that if you get the flu vaccine, you don't get the flu. You don't get the flu, you don't get inflamed. You don't get inflamed, you don't get prothrombotic. And if you're not thrombotic, hey, no myocardial infarction. If one could, quote, boost the immune system, and you can't, then you would also get an inflammatory thrombotic state that should lead to more vascular events, such as strokes, heart attacks, and pulmonary emboli. But here's some more indirect data that getting the flu shot is good for you. Avoiding the flu 
is good. Vitamin D. Don't get the vaccine, many a wackaloon site will say. All you need is vitamin D to prevent and treat influenza. Now, I am not going to deny the importance of having sufficient vitamin D to keep the immune system running happily. Vitamin D is an important immune modulator, and being vitamin D deficient does make your immune system function less well. Having higher vitamin D serum level does decrease the risk of viral infection, although the risk, as in all things dietary and supplementary, modest at best. Quote, during 114 days of the fall and winter in a temperate zone, a serum concentration of vitamin D of 38 nanograms per mil or higher was associated with a twofold decrease in the risk of developing an acute viral infection of the respiratory tract. Unquote. A modest decrease in the risk and enough to keep me drinking milkshakes all winter to keep my vitamin D levels elevated. If only vitamin D was in beer. The question is, if you supplement vitamin D in patients, can you treat or prevent influenza? There is zero data for influenza. Zip, zilch, nada, nil. But that doesn't stop people from proposing you should take vitamin D as your prevention and as your treatment for influenza. There is some recent data for viral upper respiratory infections. In Finland, a cold, cloudy northern climes, not unlike Oregon, they did a placebo-controlled double-blind study of 164 young Finnish men who either got 400 international units of vitamin D or placebo daily. The treatment and the placebo group had the same initial levels of vitamin D, 78.7 nanomoles per liter, and after supplementation with 400 international units of vitamin D a day, the mean serum concentration actually went down in the treatment group to 71 nanomoles per liter, but fell even further in the placebo to 51.3 nanomoles per liter. Let's see. Moles to molecular weight. Avogadro's number to... Eh, it's late. I'm tired. And do not have the intellectual wherewithal to convert nanomoles to liter to milligrams per mil. I must have a homeopath's understanding of concentrations. Fortunately for you, someone else can do math, and they did the conversion for me. Yes, it's also fun to whitewash a fence. To see if they started at the 38 nanograms per mil that was effective in decreasing risk for viral respiratory tract infections. To compare it, the intervention group started at 31 nanograms per mil, the placebo group at 29.8 nanograms per mil, and after receiving vitamin D for six months, their levels went to 28.6 and 20.5 nanograms per mil. So if 38 is the cutoff, even with supplementation, all these patients were vitamin D deficient. Thank you, Nessio, by the way, at Science-Based Medicine for doing those calculations for me. It's interesting that the levels did go down, suggesting that 400 international units a day in sunless Finland was not enough vitamin D. But again, the results were modest. Let's quote them, shall we? Yes, we shall. The main outcome variable, which was the number of days absent from duty due to respiratory tract infection, did not differ between the groups. The mean number of days absent was 2.2 in the intervention group and 3.0 in the placebo group. There was an effect during the first six weeks of the study, 
with a mean of 0.7 days of absence in the intervention group and 1.4 in the placebo group. After the first six weeks, there tended to be no difference between the groups. Probably, he says parenthetically, because both groups still had suboptimal vitamin D levels. Nevertheless, the proportion of men remaining healthy throughout the six-month period was greater in the intervention group, 51%, versus the placebo group, 36%. End quote. Not impressive, but something, and when it comes to avoiding illness, something is better than nothing. Better still, being replete in vitamin D will increase your response to the flu vaccine. So taking vitamin D, especially if you are deficient, may increase the antibody levels after your flu vaccine, and the vaccine still remains the best way to avoid getting the influenza virus or myocardial infarction. So do I suggest vitamin D? Yes, as part of a healthy breakfast. And if you are deficient. There's one of a number of interventions that you can use to modestly prevent your getting ill during the virus season. But is vitamin D the be-all and end-all of flu prevention and treatment? Nope, not even close. Acupuncture and placebo. Man is the only animal that blushes, or needs to, Mark Twain. I suppose that would imply that the average alternative practitioner is not human because they don't blush at the nonsense that they practice. Oh, well, I think they're human. Acupuncture is all placebo effect, whatever placebo is. This was reconfirmed yet again in a randomized trial of acupuncture for osteoarthritis of the knee, effects of patient-provider communication. In this trial, patients had real acupuncture, or sham acupuncture, as if there's a difference. And they had either a neutral or enthusiastic acupuncturists. Those that had an enthusiastic acupuncturist had a better decrease in reported pain, whether the acupuncture was real or sham. Quote, TCA, which is not tricyclic antidepressants, but acupuncture, was not superior to sham acupuncture. Big surprise. However, acupuncture styles, ooh, just like those old kung fu movies, I do the crane style, had significant effects on pain reduction and satisfaction, suggesting that the analgesic benefits of acupuncture can be partially mediated through placebo effects related to the acupuncturist's behavior. This result should come as no surprise. Expectations will often color people's perception. More expensive wine is rated higher than the same vintage labeled as Mad Dog 2020. An expensive placebo is more effective at relieving pain than a less expensive placebo. But here's the question I keep coming up with this placebo effect deal. Does the perception of reality mean that reality was altered? Okay, I play golf with my kids almost every night in the summer, and towards the end of the season, I tend to get a bad right elbow tendonitis. As I make my downswing, the pain fibers fire, and it screws up my swing, if I am not focused on hitting through the pain. If I take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen before I play, I have less pain, and my swing is unchanged. Not enough to beat my son, but that's another matter. Decreasing pain leads to improved function, because pain limits function. 
If you have a musculoskeletal problem, you usually have a reproducible limit to your function because of the pain. If pain is really decreased, then function should improve. As I have discussed at length on a prior QuackCast, I do not think there is really a placebo effect. Certainly for objective endpoints, there is never a placebo effect. For subjective endpoints like pain, I remain suspicious. Now buried in the acupuncture paper were two objective endpoints, range of motion, how well the patient could move their knee, and the time to get up and go test, which usually gets accelerated for diarrhea. For objective endpoints, range of motion and the time to get up and go, there were no changes in any of the groups. So it makes me wonder just what improvements these patients really had. They were subjectively better, but objectively, there was no pain. I would think that if your pain was really better, your function would have improved. Such is the mystery of pain. But it still makes me wonder if the placebo effect is no more than patients convincing themselves they are better when in fact nothing has changed. In the saw palmetto studies, patients said they were better with their urinary obstructive symptoms, yet objectively their urination flow did not change. Patients receiving acupuncture for nausea and vomiting for chemotherapy said it improved, yet their diary said it did not change. I think the placebo effect is nothing more than diluting yourself. At least that's my interpretation. If function is not improved, if they are still limited by pain, is the pain really gone? If the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to see it, does it make a sound? Well, Bob and Ray prove that the answer is no, it does not. However, is this just a milder example of the same cognitive processes that can lead to hysterical blindness? Or to patients who have tumors the size of a large mushroom and, curiously, cannot see them? Man is the only animal with the ability to convince themselves that the tangible is unreal or that the unreal is tangible. Always keep your words soft and sweet in case you have to eat them. I have said numerous times that I was envious of scam practitioners as they essentially live in a never-changing world. Once the ideas of homeopathy, Reiki, which I think it's funny that my spell checker always suggests R-E-E-K-Y, acupuncture were codified, there has been no change. Learn once, use forever. Not so, it turns out, thanks to reported Medscape. Conflict of interest warning, I am a paid Medscape blogger. New acupuncture points have been discovered. Acupuncture advances, quote, we generally modify acupoints to make them more effective and more appropriate for cancer patients. For example, the acupoints, which are predetermined places on the body where needles are inserted for therapeutic effect for hot flashes for normal menopause, are not necessarily the same ones for early menopause due to chemotherapy, end quote. That's amazing. There are different acupuncture points, placebo points, if you have age-related menopause versus chemotherapy-related menopause. 
Even though both are fundamentally due to lack of female hormones, your meridians and key know the difference. Wow, I'm impressed. Unfortunately, this breakthrough in acupuncture has yet to be published. Although this pioneering work was done at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, as best I can tell, the only way you can learn this incredible clinical breakthrough is by paying $495 and taking the online acupuncture class offered by Sloan Kettering. I guess there are some medical cures they really don't want you to know about unless you pay first. It worked for Kevin Trudeau. It works for Sloan Kettering. I'm sure this phenomenal pioneering work will eventually be published, and I suppose... It will be in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I will have a second helping of words. So, sadly, we come to the end of QuackCast 51. You swipe that tear from the corner of your eye, there will be more. In the meantime, while you're waiting for my next QuackCast, go to iTunes and write me a glowing review. That's all I ask. Well, that and eat a can of almonds every week. <laughs>